Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the December 13th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Returning to the show will be world-renowned investigator on Huntington's disease, Dr. Leslie Thompson. She'll be accompanied by Melody Bandley, advocate for her husband and other patients for advances in Huntington's disease research and care. And a bonus, if we have the time, but who knows, because we've got so much to cover on HD, it's American Ballet Theater's retiring artistic director, Kevin McKenzie. The full interview with him is now available on askaleader.com. He appears in Orange County during the current run of the Nutcracker, performed now through December 18th at the Sagerstrom Hall. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My guests for the largest share of this hour are Dr. Leslie Thompson, UCI professor specializing in research on Huntington's disease, and Melody Bandley, advocate for advances in Huntington's disease research and care. Dr. Leslie is a Donald Bren and Chancellor's professor in the departments of psychiatry and human behavior, neurobiology and behavior at UC Irvine. Dr. Thompson studied Huntington's disease for most of her scientific career and was a member of the International Consortium that identified the causative gene, the gene, that's the key here, for Huntington's disease in 1993. She also co-identified the mutation causing achondroplasia, okay, the most common genetic form of short-limbed dwarfism in 94. Since that time, the laboratory, in her name, has been actively engaged investigating the fundamental molecular and cellular events that underlie how the mutant Huntington's disease gene causes degeneration of specific brain cell populations to induce motor and cognitive decline and premature deaths, death of patients with the ultimate goal here to develop new treatments, including stem cell-based treatments funded by the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. We've all voted on that proposition two years ago, and that's the round two for that amazing outlay. The laboratory also focuses on understanding mechanisms that underlie amyotrophic, amyotrophic. Amyotrophic, amyotrophic. Okay, one of those. Uh, the a- <laughs> lateral sclerosis, that's ALS, people know that. And more recently, X-linked dystonia, Parkinsonism, with the goal of developing personalized treatment strategies for these diseases. The research benefits from the integrated use of the patient stem cells, we're going to talk about that, and mouse models, and the bioinformatics. So she's a member of the Huntington Care Scientific Advisory Board, Packer Center, SSAB, a chair of the Huntington's Disease Society of America, um, SAB, whatever that... Scientific that's, Advisory Board, sorry. Scientific <laughs> Advisory Board, okay. So, And the chair-elect of the Hereditary Disease Foundation's Scientific Advisory Board. Founding co-editor and the chief of Journal of Huntington's Disease. She's principal investigator of a particular core study, OMICS is the, an acronym, of the ANSWER ALS program, with which is a precision medicine approach. We're going to get into some of that kind of thing and its application and how varied it is. She previously was on the show... Seven short years ago, September 2015, and she recently convened an important Huntington's Disease Care Symposium, and that's what those findings from there that she brought, she'll bring to you listeners today. Joining Dr. Thompson is my other guest, Melody Bandley. Hi, Melody, you're right there. We'll just do a quick sound check. Hello. There she is. Thank you. She's a professional. You can hear her. She completed <laughs> her Bachelor's of Arts degree in History and her Juris Doctor, her law degree, at Brigham Young University. She was a practicing attorney for 15 years, as well as a triple jump coach at Los Alamitos High School. She was a grant writer for Build Futures, a nonprofit assisting homeless young adults get into some homes and developing life skills. Melody became an advocate for Huntington's disease when her husband, Brent, We'll talk a bit about Brent, was diagnosed in 2014. She continues to devote considerable time assisting in his care. 
She helps with the Huntington Disease Care, it's HD Care, the symposium, and is the Orange County Marathon Huntington's Disease Care team captain. The Race for a Clause, we produced a PSA so that we hope some listeners actually heard that from different shows and participate in that. Leslie Thompson joins me in studio, and Melody Banley comes to us from her home in Seal Beach. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Melody, and welcome back, Leslie Thompson. Thanks so much, Claudia. It's really nice to be back. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you very much, Claudia. So, you know, we've got just a heady, heady agenda today. So, as we've talked about, it's that Huntington's is an inherited progressive disorder that affects movement, cognition, and behavior marked by uncontrollable and often painful involuntary movement. Leslie, you were last, as we said, you were on seven years ago. Let's begin with zeroing a bit in on some of the science. Talk about how recent, over I guess maybe the last three plus years, the neurodegenerative protein that you were studying, that although three recent clinical trials were not breakthroughs in treatment, it did ultimately, all three of them, ultimately informed your team about Huntington's disease treatment. I may say HD from time to time, folks. So, so talk about what you did learn. It's, it's never a loss when you figure out we can't use this. We have to go on something yes. else. It's very revealing. Yes, it, failure. Re- it really is. And we talked about this quite a bit at the HD Care Symposium, as you mentioned. So Huntington's disease is this very complex disorder. I mean, we know exactly what causes it. It's a single mutation that causes the disease. So unlike many neurodegenerative diseases where it's more sporadic or unknown what, what causes, we know what causes it. But even so, it's incredibly complicated because it affects so many regions of the brain. And so there was a couple of clinical trials recently that, you know, there was quite a bit of hope around where they were going after the genetic cause of the disease. So they were trying to lower the production of that mutant Huntington protein. And both through a, a technology called allele-specific oligonucleotides, or ASOs, which is they get injected into the spinal cord, go up into the brain. And then the other approach was a drug that Novartis had was testing. And all three of those, three of the approaches were not successful and the trials were halted. Now, it was a huge disappointment to the community. But what we've learned from that, I think, is that we still are going to get, go after this genetic cause of the disease and try to lower it, but in other ways. So, for instance, to only target the mutant part of the protein that seems to be most toxic and not the whole protein. So we learned that. Oh, wow. We're, we're learning some things about delivery. We're learning about, you know, the peripheral effects, like that you might not want to lower this in the body, just in the brain. So there's a lot of things that we've learned that the cool things about these studies is the amount of community engagement that happened with the HD patient community and the researchers and the companies. It was really amazing. The Roche trial, for instance, there was a lot of engagement with the with the patients. So, so we're learning more about the biology and what we want to target. And now there's a lot of different approaches. There was a paper that just came out today, as a matter of fact, that is targeting the RNA. So the DNA encodes what's called RNA and then, then RNA codes for proteins in the cell. And an approach from UCSD, from Gene Yao's lab, that is targeting the RNA using what's called CRISPR technology. So this is where you can actually edit the DNA or the RNA. And so there's huge hope, and there's a real need. I think the other thing we learned is to really... Um, we want need the patient community to also really understand what clinical trials are all about because it was disappointing, but we have learned so much and the engagement and the opportunities and the trials that are going to be coming up soon are going to are really exciting and, and hopeful. So to be super crude and everybody get used to me being super crude is that was human intervention you're working on. You're going to go back to mice. Yes. Yeah, so so it goes back and forth all the time. All so, the time. So there's going to be other human trials coming up. Okay. Those were human. And there's a number of trials ongoing still to try to get at the mutant protein or other, other approaches. There's something called Unicure where they're knocking down Huntington in the brain using a virus to deliver it. So th- there's many ongoing human trials. But yes, we're going back to... Um, there's always an iterative process going on where mm. labs are studying approaches in mice and then in 
other larger animals and then going into the human clinical trials. And that's always this process that's ongoing. So it, it never stops for when a human trial is ongoing. There's still lots and lots of work from many labs all over the world to find other approaches or improve on those approaches to get the best treatment possible. And as as you were saying in the the talk, you know, you're you're looking at you know is the liver taking a hit because of, I mean, it's I don't know if it's considered some of those interventions are toxic. The the liver's trying to sort of deal with that that, and so there are so many things that you're trying to keep track of, and there's a cost, but is it exceeded by the benefit of you know that's, regulating that motor? That's exactly right, Claudia. That that is you hit the nail on the head. Is you want to have improved benefit and and there could be costs that that are involved we do know we are starting to learn that you really don't want to knock down huntington per se in the liver say so you really want to try to confine that to the brain but the advantage of having a drug a compound that you just take is of course you know of great benefit over say getting an injection in the brain or in the spinal cord so there is that cost benefit but there's also, we just need to understand more. So there's a lot of research now going on of what exactly is happening if you lower Huntington or if you affect the liver or, or these other things. So we're, we're learning a lot. So, and you've learned about the timing for treatment. Yes. So talk about what you want. I mean, there's a whole lot. We've had Josh Grill on talking about screening. But, I mean, most Huntington disease patients, they've, they've actually, they have some genetic information yes. from their their predecessors. Yes. So in a way, the screening is different than with Alzheimer's because it's, it's more apparent. But you still have to be very careful about the screening and then bring people on about, you know, and, and figure out what's the timing for this intervention, that, what's the most beneficial. That's exactly right. So, I, so first of all, there's, with Huntington's disease, we do know the mutation, as you say. So there, we know, or you can know, who will get the disease. Because if you have that mutant gene, you are going to get the disease at some time in your life. So, And there's a really amazing organization called Enroll HD. All over the world, people are enrolled in that to, and it's a longitudinal study to understand, and I, you know, when the earliest symptoms come on, what are some biomarkers we could use to track disease or track interventions? And so people are enrolled in that, and that's a lot of the people in the trials come from that. Wow. Uh, it's just fantastic. Yes. And um, with with the trials that happen, say the Roche trial, one thing we learned is that sort of the earlier you can intervene, the younger the patient, the better the outcome. So if you're too far away from onset of disease, that particular treatment did not have benefit. Um, and and there's this discussion, you know, how early should you treat? Should you treat before symptoms come on? Just because you know that that mutation is there, but we don't want to do harm. Right, so there's the other cost. Benefit. There's the other part. Do no harm, and so it's. I think where people are landing is to try to treat as early as possible when symptoms are appearing, and for clinical trials anyway. And then once they're deemed as safe, or they show efficacy, and they show efficacy, then maybe think about treating before symptoms. But we have a lot to learn. So the induced pluri potent cells. Yes. Those are the stem cell that can do a lot of different jobs. I mean, yes. we've got with the placentals and the umbilical cord, that's like the universal. It does everything. But the uni, the induced pluripotent cells are a, a portion of the intervention that you get from a patient's own skin that's biopsied. Right. So talk about all the amazing stuff yes. we've learned about that potential in yes. the last seven years. Yes. So in this short minute. In a minute. Um, no, no, not <laughs> no, in a minute, but kidding. in the time you need. Yeah. So the, the, these are phenomenal cells. Uh, first of all, the, the sort of umbilical cells or bone cell, you know, adipose cells, those can do what's called differentiate into some cell types. They cannot go into any cell type, okay. but an induced pluripotent stem cell, a pluripotent or an embryonic stem cell, but a, the pluripotent means that it can sort of go into any cell type. So you can differentiate these, make heart cells from them. You can make brain cells from them. You can make, you know, um, liver cells, anything, pancreatic cells to study diseases. And because they come from individual patients, they carry those mutations 
in those cells. So you're not engineering a mutation into a cell. It's carrying it within its normal context. So this has been an incredible opportunity for the field because we really did not have good cell models before this. It was really hard to model the disease. And so these these have allowed us now to get at a much greater understanding of the mechanisms involved in causing Huntington's disease and the very early symptoms in a dish that cause Huntington's disease. And so we can test interventions, genetic and drug interventions in these cells. We can understand the pathways better. And then different types of these pluripotent stem cells, you can differentiate along to, say, a dopaminergic neuron that is lost in Parkinson's disease or a medium spiny neuron that's lost in Huntington's disease. And these are now being explored for transplantation into the brain to both protect the cells that are there and potentially replace cells that are dying. So this is this whole new amazing area that CIRM, as you mentioned, CIRM has been at the forefront of in funding efforts. And so they've been both funding these development of these iPS cells and applications for transplantation and therapeutics, which has been just phenomenal. I want to get into the specialized patient treatment what the opportunities are there and the efficacy. But first, I want to stay with the sort of institutional part. Yes. So we can talk about where everybody voted for the second round of CIRM funding in 2020's general election. So I'm just imagining that at CIRM here at our Stem Cell Institute at UC Irvine is that this is an agglomeration of all kinds of neuro degenerative diseases, syndromes, whatever I'm supposed to call them. So how, just speak to that benefit of you being, you know, you can just sort of like lean over a a cubicle and say, hey, and they come, hey, back. We're, We're so lucky here. We have this amazing stem cell institute where people are housed in the same building and also on campus in multiple buildings. But yeah, you can go talk to your colleagues about how are you differentiating this cell type? Or can I try the cells that you're using? Or um, what did you find about your transplantation? How are you immunosuppressing the animals, for instance? But this this extends, neuro is one of our huge applications here, but it extends to diabetes. It extends to osteoarthritis. It extends to eye diseases people are working on here. And we're all learning from each other. We go to joint seminars. We we also have train students. So we have a CIRM training grant also that trains students and postdoctoral fellows in stem cell biology here as well. And so there's multiple areas of interactions and benefit that that's come from CIRM. I have to just quickly say, Henry Claussen, who works yes. on the ophthalmologic tissue, that he said on the show years ago, he said, it's this CIRM opportunity has created this Mason-Dixon line yep. of stem cell research and treatment. So it's like, this it's exceptional. It's and, and unbelievable. <laughs> so, all right. So it's a special then, specialized treatment. Mm-hmm. And I'm waiting. This is where Melody can hop in, too, because she, she has privilege with certain kinds of patient insurance coverage and that kind of thing. But I am always concerned when we get to really high level interventions and specialize, it's, it's essential that it's specialized. You're targeting exactly what needs to be right. done for every patient. But that's meaning that implies, though, carries with it a huge expense. Not everybody has access. So how do you envision there is going to be in this in the next world an equal opportunity at getting care? Yeah, that is such a good question. It's and it's difficult because these technologies are expensive initially to work out. I mean, to do a clinical trial period is, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And in some countries, you can do those clinical trials because of the kind of healthcare right. that's more generous than right. it is here. So it's, it's really complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. I mean, I think everyone's hope is to make this these Things that work widely available. You know, I used to go down to Venezuela even and with work with those populations down there. And you'd love to be able to bring treatments to these countries as well as here and all over the world. And so we, it is a problem we have to tackle. Okay. So, Melody, here you are. We're going to bring Melly Bandley in over at Seal Beach there and, and say, say hi to your hubby from us while we're talking about what, all that's going on here. So... So talk okay. about what you have. I mean, you, you in preparation for this interview, you talked about you are blessed with coverage that allows you to do all kinds of things. So let's talk about how that works for you. Well, well I think it's important to understand that 
these things that Leslie's talking about are not currently available. Correct. So we are we are left to do what we can do. And for us, what has been most effective is therapy. We have done significant amount of speech therapy and also a lot of physical therapy. And and Melanie have, and Melanie, excuse mm-hmm. me. And speech is one of it's the first function that declines. Is that correct? Um, or that you in our noticed? Case, no, no, it, it was, was first physical. Okay, but they coincide. Okay, they, you know the the worse the movements are, the worse the speech okay. becomes. It's a loss of you know muscle control. But one of the major problems with Huntington's that people don't often think of because they focus on the physical movements, which are so apparent, right. is that when the a lot of the speech problem involves inability to swallow correctly. And so that's, that's not really a visible thing unless someone's choking. And so speech therapy, however, addresses that. And that has been probably the number one thing that we have seen improvement in my husband's condition because of the therapy that he received. So that's been that's been a real important thing for me to try to both, you know, advocate for him to get the therapy that he needs, find therapists that are helpful and therapies that are helpful, um, but also to make the things that we found that work for us known to other people that have Huntington's. Well, and so tell us, uh, what I want for listeners to join along with is what your experiences of your husband, uh, where, where you want people to understand what's going on. He benefits from people, you know, interacting with him. There's, there's, uh, I mean, there, we'll talk, we can talk about the, the physical therapy and we can talk about the ever nurturing social interaction with people and people can be freaked out about Huntington's disease. We, you know, we, there's some very high profile people and, People don't know what to do about approaching someone with this as it advances to. So tell us what you want people to know about interacting with your husband and other people who've been diagnosed with Huntington's disease. Sure. One thing that we've noticed is really, and I I do speak from my experience. I want to make that perfectly clear. So there may be different people with Huntington's that have a little different experience, but from my understanding, these are fairly common traits Um, that you have to kind of hurry up and wait. If they want something or they ask for something, they really do need it right away. It's not like a character flaw. It's like it's a neurologic effect from Huntington's. But it takes them time to process. If you ask them a question and you don't wait for them to answer and you ask them another question, it's like their brain does not know how to handle that. So it's really, it really is helpful for them to have a, like you say, a nur- nurturing conversation with somebody. That entails them listening and paying attention to where he's at. You know, if he's really agitated or he is really like not, um, not paying attention to them, not listening to them, obviously he doesn't want to be involved in that discussion. But if he's just sitting there and he's being quiet, don't assume he doesn't want to talk to you. He's probably trying to think of what he wants to say because that executive function of listening, formulating an answer, and responding has to take place on the HD timeline. (laughs) It takes a while. And if you interrupt that, it may have to reset and then... So it can be very frustrating if he's surrounded by... You know, you don't want to bombard him with questions. So, Mel- but, yeah. yes. so, Melody, I'm wondering if an apt analogy might be we're maybe we're neurotypical. I don't know if that's the term we can use in this setting, that that we're we're operating like uh, high speed vehicles on the freeway. So to interact with an HD patient, let's get into the pedestrian lane. Let's just mm-hmm. let's just slow it down, be present. And it's and and you can tell. I mean, can you not tell by his disposition that that nurturing interaction was like, wow, that was that was the that was a jackpot moment. That was that had even clinical benefits. Talk to yeah, that. No, it, you you can. Yeah, and but you have to be like aware, like you said, to be present. You have to be aware of what is going on, and you can usually, like I said, pick up cues from his. Like what kinds? His behavior, you know. 
talk, give us some examples of cues so people we can help people come along here and how they can be effective, helpful. So, okay, so I was thinking of some examples. So, if for instance, if you're um, well, we had a family event not that long ago, and this actually went really well. In fact, my whole family kind of noticed after the fact, like, that was really great. And what it was is that he was there. His sister was sitting by him. We were playing cornhole or something in the backyard. They were just with him. And occasionally they would share, you know, a little comment or something like that. So he feels a part of what's going on. He's interacting, but he's able to do it on, you know, on a slower timetable where it's relaxing and enjoyable. But phone calls, to give you an opposite, you know, phone calls are really, really hard for him. And that's understandable because when you're on the phone with someone, are you really comfortable if they stop and don't talk to you for, you know, 15 or 20 seconds? Or, you know, you want to keep the conversation going. So if you're with him or you're talking to him on the phone even, you still have to just give him time and um, and not pepper him. You know, I kind of think of those either movies or news shows, you know, where they show the person with the microphone and all these people are yelling at him. That's kind of, I think, how he feels sometimes. It's like, wait a second. <laughs> the flooding, the flooding of... So, yeah. anyway, so that's kind of where how we try to deal with that. Just want to let listeners know, if you've just joined us, my guests are Dr. Leslie Thompson, UCI professor specializing in research on Huntington's disease, and Melody Bandley, an advocate for advances in Huntington's disease research and care, talking about her spouse. And so sort of like just the stimulation and uh, people moving about in and out, circling in, just, hello, I I, I know you're there, because people don't, they don't act like he's right there. That just, mm-hmm. just an acknowledgement. That's a start. And so I'm just trying to think of other kinds of cues so people know, and that reinforces that they keep trying to interact for that, you know, really golden kind of the benefits of, of that encounter. I could write, can I pick up his hand and I squeeze it and just say, you know, or I, I can ask permission. May I, may I, may I take your hand and squeeze it? Oh, sure. And yeah. he, and it, maybe it'll yeah. be a delayed reaction. He may, I don't know if he nods his head, he vocalizes something, but I just, I want to give everybody a kind of an interactive vocabulary. And also, folks, when you do something that's that beneficial, it also makes you feel better too. So it's worth this effort. He was even at the walk this weekend, right, Melody? Or the yes, run? <laughs> yes, and I was, I was, I will be honest, I was kind of nervous when he said he was going to come with me to the run for the clause, or run for a clause that we, we did last weekend. But I was secretly really hoping it would work out as it did, <laughs> which is he was there, people came over, introduced himself, he was able to be part of an event, but, you know, he didn't get overwhelmed, people didn't pepper him with questions. But they were kind, and they talked with him, and um, he enjoyed it. Yeah, so that was that was good. And I think it is really essential that, you know, people that really, really want to help him specifically, you, you need to be patient with the building of that relationship. You can't expect him to just, you know, immediately respond appropriately to everything that you do. And maybe I guess they... Don't be put off if if he doesn't seem interested, because uh, it takes him time to appear interested. You know, sometimes someone will ask, I'll, or maybe I'll ask him something. Maybe a couple hours later, I'll get the answer because we've moved on. You know, and then he'll come back and say, you know, maybe we should do that or something. You know, and it's like you know he's been thinking about it all that time, trying to come up with how he's going to respond to that question. So. I think that's kind of what I would say is don't assume they're not interested if they don't, you know, if he doesn't really respond as you would anticipate. And so at the same talk I was mentioning that Leslie Thompson was gave a terrific presentation, you also talked about this uh, this matter of physical therapy or, or therapeutic sessions and and that you've learned a lot and maybe Leslie Thompson can can talk about this too, but there's there's the kind of the importance of maintaining motivation and just sort of like there's certain attributes here that keep them coming back in and working on that because that that 
I don't know, are there synapses from the that you're trying to fire up? And there's also just not. I'm not sure if there's endorphins from your working out, but there's all kinds of things. So, Melody, talk about what you're trying to build into the uh, this sort of physical therapy, maintaining motivation, and what kind of improvement. I mean, there are improvements, or are they? Is it about just holding capacity steady? In in our case, we have found that there are some improvements. Now, those improvements may be short lived. Or they may, you know, not always be seen. But if you compare, you know, how he is right now with how he was a few months ago, in most aspects, I would say there is some improvement. Wow. He's got better posture, and he generally has better balance. Yet, has he had some falls, you know? And and is there potential that now he's declining again? Sure, there is. One of the things that I find real important to that I, I that I hope will be addressed at, at some point for us we are fortunate our insurance doesn't really over mm, overzealously I should say um, watch how we do our physical therapy visits we have a certain number of visits throughout the year we can use those but I know some people their insurance does not allow them to continue therapy if they do not show improvement uh, and yeah. what I think people need to understand is that with a neurodegenerative condition like Huntington's disease, staying the same is winning. If he's not getting worse, this is a good thing. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's kind of counter how the, you know, or maybe our system is set up. But, you know, if you're keeping him out of a wheelchair, if you're keeping him out of the ER, you're ahead of the game. And so, you know, I just, I just kind of wanted to mention that because I really have been, we've been fortunate. And still, there's more that I wish we could do, but, you know, we are limited. And I understand the need for uh, limitations, but it, it really is helpful when we're able to pursue this course throughout the year mm-hmm. and be able to continue there's always something more you can be working on with oh, sure. you know we we have to choose because of of those limitations what we're going to focus on and and also because of his limitations you don't want to overwhelm him either yeah because you so want to really, maintain all those yeah. benef- the motivation and not the kind of thing somebody could just right, exactly so we we try to maintain that motivation by building in little little moments of success and his therapist is really great at doing that yeah, and, and I just um, want to add to what Melody's saying. It's um, totally agree, and and through the the organizations that try to help families too, such as the HDSA Center of Excellence we have here at UCI, where they have you know respiratory therapy and all sorts of different types, speech therapy. I was going to ask about speech besides balance and yeah. posture. Speech is there too, and and even to the degree that there's clinical studies that are going are going on for the whether exercise either slows or provides, you know, benefit for the disease or even dance therapy. There's there's dance therapy out there. Um, that, that beat seemed, can carry. It motivates and that energizes. That motivates and energizes, and people really engage with that as well. And, and so, like, Melody, it's just this sort of forefront that maybe hasn't been as explored as it could be. So, is, Melody, is there speech therapy? Is that a component of the, the intervention right now? Yes. What, what, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We we have done. In fact, we did start speech even before. I think you're right. We did start speech before we started physical therapy. <laughs> but um, yes, and in fact, that's one of the areas, like I mentioned, that he's that has been particularly helpful. And I know I I really emphasize this at our recent symposium. That's the other way that I really try to advocate for my husband is by my involvement with HD Care at UC Irvine and. And at our recent symposium, we we kind of emphasized this device, which his speech therapist introduced us to. It's an expiratory trainer, they call it. And it has helped him to really improve in his um, choke, the number of choking episodes and things like, like that that he's had. And so those kind of things, when I find those, to me, that's real important to share those things with the HD community. And, yeah, we have support groups that can support each other, but those by necessity are small. So, 
I really feel like it's important to get those, that word out to the social workers, to the scientists, to to those that interact with a larger number of people, so that hopefully those things that have helped my husband can also help others. And it's a real specific treatment, but it's also very, very much a part of, I think, everyone's experience with HD. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to just unnerve both of you with the question. It's about, we're talking about decline in speech and the, the choking hazards and that kind of thing. So how is there, when, how hard is it to laugh? What kind of motor activation is it to laugh? Because that's sort of a, that fires off an interaction with others. But is it, do, do, there's a point where people have their last laugh. Melody, does he, is, is uh, your husband, is he's, you still is he still laughing? Is Brent? He, yeah, I think so. But, but you're honestly right; it's kind of hard for him too. Um, um, but no, he he actually, my husband, honestly, he has handled this immensely well. I, maybe it's partly because he we don't have it in his family. He's the lucky one that somehow got it. Oh. You know spontaneously, we'll say. I don't know, somewhere it's, someone has it. A bit. There's a whole discussion of the gray area of the gene and where it can become, um, you know, symptomatic. And he's apparently in that group. So maybe he hasn't seen, you know, we haven't seen it. You know, other people have it. They've seen their mother or their father or their grandparents or whoever go through the struggle. And we haven't seen that. He kind of just lives his life and doesn't think about it. But at the same time, I know he is aware of the decline. So, yeah, he has a pretty good attitude about things, and he um, and he does try to to be, you know, happy as much as he can. So that there's a lot of different sort of markers there, Leslie Thompson. Can you? Yes, I'm sure you have a lot to say about <laughs> all of those. Um, well, just in terms of the inheritance of the gene, there yeah. is this gray zone where. The repeat can expand. So this is the CAG repeat in the DNA, just a unit that keeps repeating. And when you have 40 or above, you get the disease. Between 36 and 39, you may or may not. And then below that, um, you can have somebody that would never manifest disease, but that repeat could expand into the range of having the disease. So it looks like a new mutation. Or there was a family member who passed away that you didn't realize they had HD. Um, there's a there's a lot of different ways that that can come about. But yeah, everything that Melody's been saying, and you know, everybody has slightly different experiences. We have individuals with onset as teenagers or young adults, like Francis Aldana's children, have mm-hmm. all had HD before they were thirty, and that can be slightly different in symptoms. Like one of their one of her children had more psychiatric symptoms, which is a really devastating aspect of Huntington's as well. The can, psychiatric in what, what ways? They what, can what, lead uh, to severe depression or psychosis or aggressive behavior, or compulsive combination. Yeah, oh. yeah, that's pretty pretty bad. And then or another one had more like Parkinson's symptoms, a lot of rigidity, and then another one had the very classic chorea and cognitive disability. But yeah, people say that it's kind of a combination of ALS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, everything else into one really devastating disease. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty, and Melody's amazing. And I, I, Melody, we have to figure out a way to get that more widespread across the country, that device and that approach. Well, I'm trying. <laughs> no, no, I, we can help. <laughs> yeah, we can. Yeah, well, we can make sure. I, I, I can make sure we tweet out this. Everybody have a listen to this. We're trying to really personalize this yeah. so that people can uh, do their part. Yeah. Well, I should probably mention the name of that device then. It's Please the do. EMST-150. Um, EMST-150. Yeah. EMST. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, yeah, I... Um, I, I've seen it help other areas too. Anything where the you know where you aspirate, because mm. that's the problem, right? You know, so, eating, yeah, spe- is eating and drinking, and then mm-hmm. it, the cascading effect being you're you're going to flood the lungs, and that's mm-hmm. infection, aspiration, and, pneumonia, and it's, and it's already yeah. complicated without that infection. 
Well, um, so I'm, let's give you two a chance to uh, continue to talk about the the partnership of clinician of the the researcher and the family member and fam and the loved one who's been diagnosed with. What what more, please? Okay. Um, I guess I can start as, uh, you know, I've been working on this since this disease since 1989, um, when I was postdoc here. And one of the reasons that I've worked in this area for so long is because a, I really want to find something that helps the families. But it, it's been this interaction with the families, the it's truly unique, I think it's, um, I feel like, you know, Melody and her husband and Everyone is part of our larger family, and all the researchers work very closely in HD care with the with the families, patient advocates, with the clinicians. We have a clinician here at UCI, Anna Marinkova, who's very involved um, running the clinic, um, genetic counselors who've been involved for years and years and years in HD. It's unique. You know, I get pictures and Christmas cards from families with their kids and, and having them on my, you know, families that are affected on my computer bulletin board and things like that it really it's very motivating mm. they're incredibly brave and amazing families and it, yeah it just really keeps we keep each other going I think I could say I would have to from my perspective I have to second that because it is so inspiring to me in fact at our symposium I I think I was practically in tears. As I look out, oh. there's Dr. Thompson, who honestly, I'm just honored to be on the same program with her. She's just an amazing, brilliant, compassionate person. And to see the work that she's doing, the wonderful people that she's gathered around her in her lab, and to know that the work we're doing at HD Care is going to benefit them directly. And of course, in turn, direct us, or you know, benefit us directly. Um, it really is um, just a, a wonderful, marvelous situation. I, I I feel so encouraged, even though you know she pointed out, yeah, we haven't got the good news we thought we were going to get in mm. the last couple of years. But still, knowing that this caliber of people are working so tirelessly. Um, to, to help me and my husband and my family and um, and all of us with with Huntington's it really um, it really is just um, it's just really really encouraging and um, and that's why you know HD care that's our main focus is to support dr. dr. Thompson's lab and of course we also support those at the HD clinic that, that need help affording their their specialized care. And and we want to spread the, the the word about what what is Huntington's what pe- what people can do because all of that comes back around. But it really is um, a great partnership. I feel like we have with especially Leslie and the and the Thompson Lab. It's it's been wonderful. So I want to take a moment to say how important it is this social skill set that Leslie Thompson has. Oh, gosh, yes. So, so, I mean, not all clinicians (laughs) can do this. They don't don't have that kind of capacity. And so she's, right now with me, it's a, this, the connection is so, so, so very palpable here. And so I, so I think that's an asset that that everybody ought to take note that not everybody, not every clinician's got these kind of chops to, to be so positively, socially adept and, and, and to do this. So, on that somber note, a, a kind of an opportunity for both of you to talk about how listeners can stay tuned, stay plugged in to what's going on, what are, I mean, there's a lot of events that have not been scheduled, but there are things that are going to happen. So give us the whole range and how uh, there's the HD Care website. People can go to previous presentation symposiums and look at other sort of bulletins and the kinds of things, but t- let us starting. Uh, but I'm I'm going to let Dr. Leslie just take a moment and because uh, it's it's a very it's an affecting kind of a, an acknowledgement here. But uh, maybe Mel, you could tell what you want listeners to know is coming up in 2023 to help out with HD care. Did you uh, did you want Leslie Mel- to go first? No, you go ahead. I'm going to let Leslie just like you know just you give her a few more minutes. 
So let you, Melody, tell us what you'd like listeners to know is in the works for 2023. Yeah, well, HD Care is, um, we're planning a larger event for next year. We've had a bit of a layoff, as everyone has, with uh, COVID. We haven't been able to do our larger events, the galas and that type of thing. We do hope to have a larger event next year, which has not been scheduled yet. But we are always involved with the Orange County Marathon, and that is a real focus of ours in the spring. And, uh, we and have one a team. moment, and, let, and mm-hmm. Melody, and there's such a there's such a, a elegant logic. These people are out running. It's a motor activity. So that sort of to connect that you guys get to run. And this is something an acknowledgement of how all the benefits of that kind of thing and with the neurodegenerative yes. processing. So anyway, so that's what's what's so interesting about being a part of the O C marathon. Okay. Yeah, so we so we, we always are real involved in that and so people can go to our website, get on our mailing list, they can um, watch for announcements about that, they can be supportive of our team, they can join our team. And you can run the marathon for free if you help us earn uh, some money and stuff like that. It's just a way to get us to to react to not to interact with the with the community to raise that awareness to yes to raise some funds, but also to to help build the community within the HD community and with those around us. It's a really it's a really enjoyable event, it and really it, it helped us make a lot of connections. And uh, we're planning some other events, the pickleball tournament, which should be honestly a blast. <laughs> so, uh, you know, people that want to join in with that. And then there are some other events during the year. Um, we'll we'll get those on our website as they evolve. But but as you mentioned, we did just have a, a symposium with some really helpful presentations. Leslie's, of course, was the keynote and is on our website in its entirety. Um, as well as the PowerPoint presentations from the others, if people are interested, you know, what about physical therapy? What about music therapy? What about speech therapy? Uh, even if you don't have Huntington's in your family, if you have any kind of neurodegenerative condition, those same therapies will be will be helpful. So anyway, that's kind of where HD care and, and we are coming from. And I want to plug how accessible the symposium is. Uh, clearly, there are lots of researchers in that room, but I could, if I can follow what's going along in that, and I can learn, and I can sort of take what I got out of that and put it into some questions, I can ask our distinguished guest today. I want people to know this is not a drawbridge you pull. It. Only investigators are welcome here. It's it's the whole public get. And yeah. our UCI clinicians are really good at accessible deliveries. Yeah. So what? Tell us what you planning for twenty twenty three. Yeah, there uh, again, what, uh, same as Melody was saying, some of these HD care events, and especially that, that marathon. Not only is it running, but we have a booth that talks about HD, talks about even things like pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which we didn't get into, but that's oh. a way for a family to go through in vitro fertilization. Let's say you know you have it in the family, and you go through in vitro fertilization, and you know your child is not going to develop Huntington's disease. There's ways to, a way to, to do that. Um, so there's a lot, so information about that information about the clinic information about resources, these other events, the stem cell center itself has public outreach events around Huntington's disease and how stem cell approaches might be beneficial. There's lots of national opportunities as well to find out about Huntington's disease and international opportunities the researchers, we have conferences, of course, to keep up with the latest in the science and then relay that back to the community and things like the HD Care Symposium, for instance, that we'll have annually. So there's there's lots of different ways, and we do hope to get more awareness out about Huntington's, for sure. Okay. So I'm glad you, you have... Thank you, Leslie. Um, yes, Melody. I have just one quick thing. Absolutely. Leslie, thank you for bringing up the PGD IVF. Yeah, um, right. I really do appreciate that. That's, that is a thing that we're going to want to focus on going forward. But also, I feel like I have to, if for people that are looking for a way to really be of help, like right now, mm-hmm. um, I would mention the HD Parity Act yes. is something that we've been trying to gather support for. Um, right now, people who um, have Huntington's and apply for Social Security Disability have to wait two years before they qualify for, for Medicare. That's kind of long. But there's that's a, a decline very long that's time, happening. And it, is, it is often really, really, really damaging. And other other 
you know, I think it's ALS, maybe even Parkinson's have, they have like a compassionate allowance where they don't, they waive that. And for HD, which is so much on the caliber of those, it really deserves the same treatment. So if they want to, you know, contact their congressman or just be supportive of that and aware that that's out there and needs support, that would be... um, that would be something I'd and, really like. And to if you get need out. any information on that, we both have that, and it's super easy to just you know click a couple buttons and and uh, say that you support it to the so congressman. It's, it's very easy. I've been sending it around to my family everywhere. She's Melody's absolutely right. So we need to find out some Republicans who have loved ones with HD and go target them. That's I mean I'm just yeah, being strategic anywhere, any, now. Everyone, but right? everyone, but that we know where what's where this leadership is taking us with us actually getting stuff done in the next session. So well, I'm glad you brought that in, Melody. Yeah, so we're getting you. it all. And we got in the genetic sort of uh, in vitro sort of intervention. So that is very, very hopeful. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to thank both of you for bringing so much. And I just have an open invitation. We come back. You, maybe there's a breakthrough. Maybe there's uh, some sit, taking stock of somebody's amazing career. or some, There's something that we can talk about in the future. So thank you, thank you, Leslie Thompson and Melody Banley, for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you. So, thank you. Thank you. So we're going to close. I didn't have time to bring up the interview that I did with Kevin McKenzie retiring from the American Ballet Theater, but it's already, folks, it's already up on my askaleader.com, the whole 27 and a half minute interview. It's pretty cool. We got super topical about what a dance artistic director is involved with. You can imagine the obvious topics, and uh, I, I covered them. So he was very gracious. It was really cool to do that. So just want to let you know next week is going to be local labor leader Austin Lynch and possibly some workers that are going to take up Irvine City Council's recently adopted hotel worker protection ordinance, the first of its kind in Orange County. Talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening.